God, you who are rich, sent your Son to become poor. Our Lord Jesus, you who reigned over all things, became a servant. How is that possible? It is impossible for us to understand, to fully comprehend, yet that is what happened. And I pray that we this morning will have eyes to see how spectacular of a truth that is. And it would draw us deep, deep into your presence where we cast off all of our sins, all of our burdens in repentance and leap at him, cast ourselves upon your son, our Lord Jesus, God Make him beautiful in our eyes this morning. Amen. Image is everything. Anyone remember those commercials from the late 80s and early 90s? Some of you are old enough to maybe remember. With Andre Agassi, the tennis player, representing Canon Cameras. The commercials showed this professional tennis player wearing these crazy outfits, outrageous outfits and wild hair while dominating with a tennis racket. And the commercial suggested, the slogan, Images Everything, suggested that looking really good could make you a superstar too. And if you had the right camera, that it would help portray you in this influential light. How you present yourself in the world does seem to have a lot of influence on people. First impressions greatly impact someone's view of who you are for a long time. For example, I read this week that half of employers admit to screening candidates, job candidates, by looking at social media, the images presented on social media. And people, a significant number of people have lost their jobs because of the images they post on social media. Beautiful people, those with beautiful images, are much more likely to get jobs. And when they get the jobs, they make 5% more in salaries than their homely counterparts. So it seems that image really is everything. Regrettably, Andre Agassi, the tennis star, says this slogan made his life much more difficult than the commercial suggested. He was the poster boy for a successful tennis image And yet, too often, he failed to live up to that image. Though he was one of the bright, up-and-coming superstars in the tennis world, it took him years to win on the biggest stage. And every time he lost, the crowd would remind him, Hey, Andre, don't you remember? Image is everything. Reminding him that he's supposed to be carrying a successful, winning image. As we continue our extended Advent look this morning at the miraculous incarnation of the Son of God, we're going to spend more time meditating on the vast gulf between the perfect, glorious, powerful, successful image of God and this continually broken, failing image that not just tennis stars, but every one of us portrays. And then we get to marvel even more of that Jesus bridged that gulf for us. Jesus is the perfect image of God. His image displayed God's perfect beauty. Nothing captivated the Father's affections more than the image of His Son. His image emanates intense glory. It reflects God's perfect love. His image is literally the essence of everything good about God. 
If anybody could claim that image is everything and live all the way up to those expectations, it is Jesus. If anyone could say, copy my image, it is Jesus. And yet for a miraculous moment in time, the eternally glorious image of God took upon himself an image contrary to his own nature. And in doing so, he calls every one of us to a life reflecting the one and only image that truly is everything. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11 and marvel at this incredible way that Jesus displayed his image in the world. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our main idea from this text today is this call for us to have the mind of Christ who is the self-giving image of God. That call comes to us in verse 5, and then the following verses give the foundation for this mindset. Christ Himself how he came into this world. And so first we're going to look at the humiliation of the Son of God in verses 6 through 8. And follow that then with the exaltation of the Son of God in verses 9 to 11. All of this to call every one of us to have the mind of Christ, the self-giving Son of God. This command from Paul to the Philippians comes out of a desire for that Philippian church to be unified, to have one mind, Nine times in this letter, Paul uses this word, think. Think in this way. It's a word that sometimes is translated feel or agree, have concern about something. He wants the whole church to agree with this same attitude of genuine love for one another. Unity in the church can only happen when people give up their own needs And focus on others, serving the needs of others, seeking the good of others. But it's not just a command that Paul gives, that he lays it out and expects perfect obedience to. Like he wants the church to have a unified heart, so he outlines specific robotic behaviors that everyone should just go through. That kind of defeats the purpose of this loving, self-giving, sacrificial heart he wants us to have. It should flow out of us. And so instead of demanding it, giving a command and leaving it there, he inspires obedience through a beautiful song 
about Christ, who is both the model of this and the power of this mind. The inspiration and the enabling of this attitude. So verses 6 through 11 are arranged as a song, a hymn. It's unclear whether Paul wrote this himself or just borrowed it from another church. But wherever it came from, it's full of beautiful imagery that inspires us to obey this glorious King who modeled it for us. Many of the words in this song are words that are not used anywhere else in the Bible and are actually quite rare in the ancient world as well. It's this poetic masterpiece that's grasping for words to describe this wonderful Savior. You've heard someone say, there's no words to express how I feel. And that's what this song is doing, saying, i got to find some words, maybe even make up some words to inspire you to this mindset. It makes you want to obey, not simply because it's commanded, but because Paul has set before us a beautiful king, this image. And we want to experience it ourselves. And all of this is possible because the humble, self-giving mindset comes from Christ himself. And the first part of the song highlights the extent to which the Son of God came in order to give himself. Verses 6-8 through eight sing of the humiliation of the Son of God. It displays this spectacular trajectory from the highest of heights in heaven to the lowest depths of the earthly abyss. Nobody has ever traversed this chasm. And where did he start his journey? Verse 6 says he was in the form of God. Our English words have a hard time really portraying what's happening here. When we hear form of God, we kind of think it means sort of sort of in the form, but not really. He had a likeness, but it wasn't true equality. But the word actually does suggest exact identical relationship. Not appearance in contrast to reality, but appearance reflecting reality. He is God. If you could look at His form before He came, assuming that somehow we could see God. He has every shape of God. He Himself is God from every appearance. He is divine. And the next phrase confirms this by saying He was equal with God. He had equality with God. But there's an interesting twist of events now. He was equal with God, but He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In your mind, you're formulating this picture of someone who's holding on tightly to something, saying, it's mine, you can't have it. I think of my kids when they have get a new toy, a new gift from somebody, and they don't want the others to have it. No, you can't have it, it's mine. This tight grip on it. But the word grasped can mean even more than that. It's another one of these unique words that the song uses. It, and it paints for us a picture of someone who has rights and authority, has got privileges, and he keeps pulling out this, this authority as a trump card. I deserve this. I, I have earned this in my life. These are my dues. Don't question me. Bow to me. And so the song is telling us that 
though Christ had all the power, all the authority, all the rights in the world, He did not come demanding simple allegiance to Him. Fatalistic allegiance. Instead, verse 7 says, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. And now things get really confusing for everybody. How in the world did He empty Himself? Did He cease to become God? That's not possible. If you can cease to become God, you weren't God in the first place. Because you can't just be in and out of the, the self-existent nature. But it's not so much that He lost something, that He set something aside in His own divine nature, but He took upon something. He took upon Himself the form of a servant. He took upon Himself the likeness of men. Somehow, while He's fully God, He added full human nature to Himself. Jake mentioned Augustine last week. Had this quote, something about he didn't empty himself of his deity, but he assumed humanity on top of that. But it's not like he just put on human clothes either, that he was God inside and human on the outside. He actually became fully man. Again, the song uses the word form. He took on the form of a servant. It's the same word that he's in the form of God. He, found, he was found in the likeness of men, fully human. Yet without that sin nature that distorts all of us, He was fully human in every way we are meant to be human. And from every appearance, He was fully man. How that works is just an incredible mystery that we better tread lightly when we try to figure it out. We label this mystery in systematic theology the hypostatic union. The Chalcedonian Creed teaches that Jesus has two natures, fully God, fully man, in one person. And don't try to figure it out beyond that. Don't try to say that there's some kind of new, unique third nature. Don't say that one nature engulfed the other one. Any Anytime you try to do that, it leads to more heresy and denies essential truths for our salvation. Instead, we just marvel, marvel in wonder, in awe that God became a man. Jesus, who was in the form of God with all the rights and authority and power that God has, became a man, a servant. That's what Christmas is all about. God emptied Himself. But He temporarily gave up His rights to glory. He didn't come demanding obedience as a master. He came in the form of a servant. He became one of us. He became one who takes commands. As a servant, His life was no longer marked by one who demands obedience, but one who obeys someone else's commands. One commentator wrote, The form of a slave is the exact opposite of glory. A slave does not have a high position, unlimited power, unrivaled sovereignty. A slave has the lowest position. He is powerless. He has no rights. He has no glory, no honor, only shame. As God, Jesus had every right to demand obedience, but instead became the obedient one Himself. 
We see this theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus says over and over in chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Chapter 6, verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Chapter 8, verse 29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. This is the language of a slave. Not the king of the world. But back in Philippians, our verse, verse 8 says, He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing this shameful, humiliating death as a simple slave. He cried out in agony, My Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was obedient to his death. Walter Hansen writes, the first half of the hymn ends with a dramatic phrase, even death on a cross. Death, death, death. Like a crescendo of a drum roll, the reverberation of this word death brings the first half of the hymn to a deafening silence. Before the cross. It's incredible enough to say that God died. What? That's not possible. God can't die. But as a man, He did. And He didn't just stop breathing one day, but He died the death of a cursed hated, despised criminal. Crucifixion wasn't a common way that you just got rid of some common criminals. This was the way that Rome made a public statement that this person hanging on the cross has zero honor. Contempt is too good of a word to use for this type of person. Crucifixion was the ultimate humiliation and destruction of a person's humanity. They're not even worthy to be called human anymore. Ancient writers said it was the most cruel and disgusting punishment. People would rather die on the way to the cross if they were facing crucifixion. Whip me, beat me, stab me, whatever you must do before I get to that cross. This is the depth to which the Son of God voluntarily dove into humanity. He emptied Himself. He humbled Himself. He poured out everything about Himself. Denied His rights. Gave Himself. This is the mind of Christ that we all are called to have. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was obedient to death on a cross. But God wasn't finished. After the tenor of this song couldn't get any lower and more discouraging and depressing, verses 9 to 11 quickly crescendo to a dramatic climax in the exaltation of the Son of God. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. Another word that is not used anywhere else. Highly exalted Him. Over-exalted Him. Well, that escalated quite quickly. Because the Son of God 
who became a slave was perfectly obedient to his master. He was showered with the greatest gifts in the universe as a reward. God did not let his faithful son suffer corruption there in the grave. His humiliation was over. Now it's time for exaltation. And on the third day, just a short breath of time, God raised him from the dead. Death, not even crucifixion, could hold him down. And the Spirit of Father quickly pulled him out of the grave, showed him off to the world, and then brought him up and sat him at his right hand in heaven, higher than any position in the world to a place of glory. A glory which we know was his to begin with. Jesus said in John 17, verse 5, Father, glorify me now in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It was something he had before, and just for a time, he gave up that privilege. He gave it up himself, and he's not taking it back. He voluntarily gave it up, and the Father is pleased to give it back and exalt him. Seat him at his right hand. Give him all the privileges as the king of the world. And the exclamation point of this exaltation is the name He bestows upon him. Paul writes, He bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. What name is that? What name communicates the most powerful, glorious being in heaven? What name expresses power and authority over all things? Moses wondered that one time. In the book of Exodus, he tried to run away from Egypt and escape. And there in chapter 3, God got a hold of him with the burning bush and said, I want you to go back and lead my people out. Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what's his name? What shall I say to them? He's asking, what authority do I have to lead these people? Why should they listen to me? A name communicates character and authority. He says, tell me your name so I can come with your authority. Names, the name gives weight to the message. If you come in the name of someone, you're claiming their authority. You're claiming their stamp, their seal of approval with your message. And so God answers Moses, I am who I am. It's a strange name. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also answered Moses. He gives some clarification. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This name is Yahweh, the Lord. Later generations of Israelites were so afraid to speak the name of God, they thought they would be cut down for misrepresenting the character of God, that they were breaking a commandment if they spoke God's name. So every time they read His name in the Bible, they would they trained themselves to simply say, Lord, Lord, Lord. So every time you read in your Bible in the Old Testament, and you see Lord in all capital letters, that's the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the name. It simply means I am. He is the self-existing one. 
This is the name that the whole world will remember and worship God throughout all generations. The Lord. So Psalm 93 sings, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. Your throne is established from old. You, Lord, are established, are from everlasting. Psalm 96 cries out, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before the Lord all the earth. Yahweh, the Lord, deserves all praise, all honor, all glory. And so Isaiah writes in Isaiah 45, verse 23, Someday... Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to Yahweh, to the Lord. And now we see Paul pick that up in this song in Philippians 2 where he says, Jesus bears the name that deserves all praise, all glory and honor. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the self-existent one by whom all things exist and to whom all praise is due. Self-existence is His very nature. But the first half of this song in Philippians 2 reminds us that not only is self-existence His nature, but so is self-giving. Our ESV translates verse 6 saying, though, even though He was in the form of God. That concessive word, though, isn't actually there in the Greek text. It's just a participle that says being in the form of God. And so you kind of have to translate that word being. Is it even though he's in the form of God or because he's in the form of God? And some have suggested that it makes more sense to say because he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. We've seen this throughout this Advent series. God is self-satisfied. He's self-existing, but in his Trinitarian nature... He is also self-giving because He is God. Because of His own nature, He gave Himself to the world. Because He is love, He is always giving. Even in this final verse of the text, in verse 11, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what? To the glory of God the Father. Jesus accomplishes perfect obedience, gets all the rewards, and as soon as He's showered with the rewards, He sends them right back up to the Father. They're all for you, God. They're all for you, Father. I did this for you. Self-giving is His nature. He's always giving Himself to lift other people up, whether it's His own Father or the world and His people. And this is the foundational inspiration for Paul's command for us to be unified in one mind, serving one another. It is the self-giving nature of God. And it's the pattern of biblical history. We read in the New Testament, James and Peter both say this, quote this line, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We see that all the way back at the beginning. Satan exalted himself, God humbled him. Adam and Eve tried to exalt themselves, God humbled them. Cain tried to exalt himself over his brother and God humbled him. Over and over, every character trying to exalt themselves. Once in a while, you get someone who seems to do the reverse. Abraham comes along, a nobody from Ur, and God exalts him, makes him the father of many nations. 
David, a poor shepherd boy, repeatedly humbles himself in the book of Samuel, and God exalts him to the king of the throne of Israel, or the throne of Israel, as king. But eventually, every one of these guys had their downfalls. But the scriptures are littered with this promise. Psalm 138, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low and he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus summarized all of this in Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who can do this? You see this pattern over and over. This pattern of the Old Testament leads us to ask, who is the one who can do this? Who can enable us to do this? In all of our sinful natures, we bear the curse of Adam and Eve Constantly trying to prove our own worthiness. Constantly trying to exalt ourselves above others. Lording our rights and privileges over one another. Reminding each other how important we are. But in Christ, Paul calls us to something different. If Christ is in us, in the church, in this church family, we ought to bear these same markings of emptying ourselves, denying ourselves, giving ourselves for the good of each other. He gives you, showers you with wonderful gifts and blessings in your life, not just for you to enjoy, but for you to offer immediately to someone else and say, share this joy with me. He gives us positions of authority and privilege, of comfort and security in order to serve those who don't have such things. We can pray all we want for unity as a church, but if it's if it doesn't come by spending more time giving, we'll never have it. More doctrinal discussions, longer time spent in small groups, none of that will work unless we are given a heart to serve. Our lives should be marked, Paul said to the Ephesians, by submission to one another. We must be a people who reflect this mindset of Christ, who humbled Himself. He humbled Himself and let God the Father do the exaltation. James and Peter then both write again, humble yourselves under the mighty hands of God, and in the proper time, He will exalt you. What gifts has God given you? What blessings has He bestowed upon you in order for you to unify and build the church. I was thinking this week about why we traditionally give Christmas gifts on Christmas. Why do we do this? Why do we celebrate Christmas in this way, wrapping presents and handing them to each other? We say, well, it's because Jesus came and gave us the greatest gift ever, right? So every time we give a gift, we're modeling that. But Jesus didn't show up on that first Christmas day with an armful of gifts and start handing them out. He himself is the gift. And so we too should have that same mind among ourselves. Not just giving gifts, but giving ourselves, pouring out ourselves for one another. 
Give your time, give your attention, give your affections to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to others to welcome them into this fellowship. What do some of these opportunities look like? If you're older, it's probably fairly likely that you've accumulated some wisdom through your life experience, perhaps some financial freedom or level of security and comfort. But don't waste your later years and all these resources just enjoying them by yourself, but pour them into a younger person or another family who needs your discipleship. And if you're one of those younger people, you've got energy and freedom to go accomplish whatever you set your mind to. Pour that passion into one another, into the church, into your brothers and sisters. I know you say, I'm so busy. I've got a lot to do. I've filled my schedule. But freedom doesn't mean that you're not busy, that you don't have any time. Freedom means you're less tied down to all the responsibilities and obligations that come with age when you've put roots down and extended your reach into so many relationships. It takes a long time to move that big ship. If you're younger, you have freedom like Paul to pour out your life more fully for Christ and His church. You have the chance now to establish priorities in your life for the rest of your life. Make them Christ and His church. And for any future elders, our responsibility is to use this authority wisely to pour out our lives for the good of this church. Leading into trials, modeling hope, praying in dependence upon God, serving others, teaching in a way that is constantly deflecting the praise and the glory to Jesus and His pointing to His power to help every single one of us. No matter what your lot in life is, deny your own dreams and passions. Empty yourself, humble yourself, and in due time, God the Father will exalt you. Paul says, this mind is yours in Christ. If you trust in Christ, He is putting this mind within you. So repent of the pursuits in your life for self-exaltation. Humble yourself and be a servant to one another. That's why Jesus died and rose from the grave. To fill the earth with self-giving servants just like He is. He died to purchase your salvation and rose to guarantee your exaltation. So you don't have to worry if you empty yourself. You will be exalted. You have that promise. And He gives you His Spirit to empower this giving, which is yours in Christ. Let's pray. God, too often, too often your churches have become known for trying to display excellence, trying to display an image of perfection, that we all have it together. God, You are the only one who has the perfect image. And we cling to Jesus that one day we will be brought into His glory. But now, help us admit that our image is broken and we are surrounded by broken images and we need one another to repair, to restore what this cursed world has taken away from your glorious image in us. 
Shape us to be like Christ. Help us have the mind of Christ and give ourselves to love others. I pray you would bring to mind right now to every one of us, somebody in this church that we need to reach out and give ourselves to. And may we be something different in this world where people, outsiders, look at us and say they are a bunch of givers, servants, humble to empty themselves for the good of others. And when you exalt us, help us to send all that praise right back to our Lord Jesus. Amen.